You're listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B.L. Purdom. Episode 37, The Goblet of Memory. Last time, I finished examining the cards and the Tarot Major Arcana, whose symbolism can help to illuminate J.K. Rowling's narrative choices in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So if you missed episode 36, you should go back. Anytime you want to listen or re-listen to any episode, just go to the Quantum Harry Twitter page, at QHPodcast, and click on the link in the pinned tweet to go to the Quantum Harry episode guide, which has links to all of the episodes in audio and video formats, plus links to blog posts related to some of the episodes. There are also images of the tarot cards on the Quantum Harry blog, my Instagram account, the Quantum Harry Pinterest board, and the Quantum Harry Facebook group. And when the video version of this episode is posted on YouTube, you'll be able to see all of the images I'm talking about in the video. This time I'll examine both the column cards and the sequential cards for the fourth book of the Harry Potter series. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire begins in a setting that does not at first seem to include Harry. The opening description of Little Hangleton is similar to the introduction of the town of Pagford in The Casual Vacancy, J.K. Rowling's first post-Potter novel. The village in Goblet of Fire is also a conservative, hidebound outpost of prejudice and social stratification. In this village, a man accused of murder 50 years earlier is still a pariah, tormented by teenage vandals, forever guilty in the court of public opinion, despite a lack of evidence linking him to the murders of his former employers. The village pub in Little Hangleton is The Hanged Man, twelfth card in the Tarot Major Arcana, and third sequential card for Goblet of Fire. It's the first overt mention of a tarot card in the seven books. There was abundant evidence in the first three books that J.K. Rowling was aligning the vertical columns of the major arcana with each book, due to the High Priestess being at the top of the second column with her open book, and the Wheel of Fortune card aligning with the book in which Harry begins to study divination, among other things. But this implies that she's also aligning each book with the sequential cards for that book, since the Hanged Man is in the fourth set of three cards, and she names it explicitly. The only other card she mentions, the Tower, in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, is also named in the book that corresponds with where that card falls in the sequential cards. It's the first card in the sixth set of three cards, the set of three cards aligning with the sixth book. Frank Bryce, de facto caretaker of the Riddle House, is a hanged man in his community, a presumed traitor to the Riddles and persona non grata, which shows that the twelfth card of the Major Arcana would be an apt description for him even if it weren't the name of the village pub. This is just one way in which Tarot relates to the fourth book of the Harry Potter series. In our grid of 21 Tarot Major Arcana cards, laid out in three rows and seven columns, the column of cards aligning with the fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, has the Emperor, number four, at the top, Strength, number 11, in the middle row, and the Moon, number 18, at the bottom. When the Emperor was the first sequential card for the second book, 
Arthur Weasley, an archetypal father, embodied the emperor archetype in that book, which is equivalent to the father archetype. He was largely responsible for acquainting Harry with the wizarding world outside the scope of the first book. Now Harry is exposed to even more of wizarding society, learning about other countries and schools, coming into contact with witches and wizards from those countries with their own governments and laws. This fits with the number four, the Emperor's number, also being the number that has governed how humans describe the world, north, south, east, and west. It is also the number of the major regions of the British Isles at the time Hogwarts was founded, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, which also align with the four Hogwarts houses, as I talked about in episode 18, The Wide World. The number four is associated with the four seasons, four elements, the four evangelists, the four suits of the tarot minor arcana, and so on. Four is used to describe the world and is a number of completion. Because of this, it's appropriate that Harry is the fourth Triwizard Champion, making the roster more complete than when there were only three, though that would normally seem to be a complete set of champions for a competition called the Triwizard Tournament. In episode 5, Our Father, I talked about Cedric Diggory being the best embodiment of the father archetype in Goblet of Fire. Like Arthur Weasley, a literal and archetypal father, Cedric also embodies the Emperor archetype. The spirit of the Emperor colors the entire fourth book. The war imagery on this card is important. I mentioned before that ram's heads are on the arms of his throne on some cards, which links the Emperor to the astrological sign of Aries, A-R-I-E-S, and with Aries, A-R-E-S, the Greek god of war known as Mars in Roman mythology. In the first book, Harry and Hagrid grow increasingly impatient with centaurs who repeat, Mars is bright tonight, over and over. This was clearly supposed to indicate the advent of war. The Emperor is the first of the three sequential cards in the second book, when Hogwarts is under attack from the Basilisk. In the fourth book, which is ruled by the Emperor, Mars is not just bright, but flaming hot. War is no longer just on the horizon. War is here. As the epitome of the Emperor in Goblet of Fire, Cedric, a sixth-year Hufflepuff, is painted in broad, grand terms. He's handsome. He's the captain of and seeker on his house Quidditch team, which is what Harry will also be in his sixth year. He's a prefect. He's the son of a ministry official. Cedric has conquered the world of school, academically, athletically, and socially. He's popular with both faculty and students, and the Goblet of Fire itself rules that he is the best person who put his own name into the goblet to be Hogwarts champion in the Triwizard Tournament. The Emperor card, number four, is numerically linked to the Fool, number 22, hovering above our grid of 21 cards. Many depictions of the 22 cards and the major arcana show most of them in a 3x7 grid, but with the Fool in its own row, right above the Emperor. The Fool is often embodied in the books by Peeves, though Arthur Weasley also had a Fool-slash-Emperor aspect in Chamber of Secrets, as I mentioned in episode 34, Emperors, Fools, and Angels. However, in Goblet of Fire, the Fool is often embodied by Harry. 
Shakespeare depicted close symbiotic relationships between kings and their fools, who were almost like shadow kings, responsible for advice that may take their kings into war or alliances that change the course of history. The superficially derogatory term fool belies how valuable this person is to the ruler and how much wisdom is brought to the job of the fool. When Harry's name comes out of the Goblet of Fire after everyone believes that all of the champions have been named, he becomes a shadow champion, Hogwarts' second champion. Let's be realistic. Draco Malfoy was unlikely to be the only one who considered Cedric to be the real Hogwarts champion. Certainly everyone in Hufflepuff felt that the real Hogwarts champion came from their house. In Goblet of Fire, Cedric embodies the father archetype, which rules the book, the character who best embodies this archetype in the book, and Harry, the protagonist, steps into his shoes during the climax, as I talked about in episode 5. This is what Harry does with all of the characters who best embody the ruling archetype in each book. In terms of tarot archetypes, Cedric embodies the emperor, ruling tarot archetype for the fourth book. It's fitting that someone who bears the title of champion should play this role, since a king or emperor should be a champion for his people. At first, Harry feels like a fool and a pretender to the champion title, living in Cedric's shadow, including learning that Cho Chang, whom he had hoped to take to the Yule Ball, is going with the quote-unquote real champion. Harry becoming the second Hogwarts champion comes out of the blue, like the actions of the archetypal fool, who does not fit into the grid of 21 tarot cards. Harry could no more have predicted his name coming out of the goblet when he knew he hadn't put it in than he could have predicted the tournament cup being a portkey. The death card, number 13, is also linked to the emperor, since 1 plus 3 equals 4, and this is how Cedric's reign ends with death. As a loyal retainer, a royal fool in the best sense, Harry brings Cedric's body back to Hogwarts after fighting valiantly as Cedric's second effectively. Harry uses the disarming charm against Voldemort, which some might consider the act of a fool, to not go for the kill. It is also the act of an anti-soldier, one of Harry's chief roles, a key part of his being a holy man and intercessor throughout the series. The middle column card, Strength or Force, number 11, shows a woman holding open a lion's jaws, bending it to her will. The figure on the 11th card takes control, as Harry must, to survive the tournament. As a Gryffindor, he could be the lion or the woman. He repeatedly takes steps to control situations in this book, using his broom in the first task and attempting to save all of the hostages in the lake, which was considered the act of a fool. He asks Cho and then Parvati to the ball. He takes a cup with Cedric, and he steps out from behind a tombstone, casting the disarming charm of all things against Voldemort's killing curse. Harry's choices show his strength of character, which is why his wand, when linked to Voldemort's, forces the other wand to produce shadows of its previous spells. The shadows that emerge from Voldemort's wand bring to mind the Judgment card, number 20, numerically linked to the Strength card, number 11, since 1 plus 1 equals 2 and 2 plus 0 equals 2. The Judgment card shows the dead being resurrected, but when the shades of Cedric, James and Lily Potter, and Frank Bryce appear, they are judging, not judged. 
They judge Voldemort. They distract him, and this helps Harry to escape. The other card linked to the strength card, number 11, is the High Priestess, number 2, because 1 plus 1 equals 2. This tarot archetype is again embodied by Ginny, but not just Ginny. As I talk about in episode 3, Iron Maiden, Parvati is also an archetypal maiden, like Ginny, who goes to the ball with Neville and does the same things as Harry's date Parvati, including meeting up with a boy from Ravenclaw, while Parvati meets with a boy from Virtual Ravenclaw, the French school Beaubaton. This parallel structure foreshadows Harry's and Ginny's eventual relationship in the sixth book, and makes her growing friendship with Harry in the fifth book possible. The center cards in the first three columns, Justice, the Hermit, and the Wheel, were intercessors between the top and bottom cards in those columns, and Harry's strength is the intercessor between the darkness of the bottom card, the Moon, number 18, and the top card, the Emperor, number 4, which is chiefly embodied by Cedric. The Moon card is an omen of dark times, but it's also important for the series' overall structure, as well as applying to details that appear in the fourth book. I spoke in the last episode about the lobster or scorpion emerging from water in the foreground on this card. This felt like a symbol for Snape in the previous book, pursuing the dog and the wolf also depicted on this card, embodied in the third book by Sirius and Remus. However, in the fourth book, for no obvious reason, or I should say, no other obvious reason, J.K. Rowling introduces last-ended scroots. The creature on this card looks remarkably the way the text describes a scroot, which appear first as small, disgusting things, and later as a monster-sized, lobsterish creature that Harry confronts in the maze during the final task. We see again the towers in the distance on the moon card, looking rather like a castle, but also looking quite a bit like tombstones in a graveyard, which is where Cedric meets his fate and Harry confronts Voldemort. The moon is a fitting symbol for the fourth book because this book functions as a mirror in the series, as the moon reflects sunlight. There are many inversions between the second and sixth books, the first and seventh books, and the third and fifth books. Likewise, in this book, many elements are mirrored between the beginning and end. For instance, at the beginning, Harry takes a port key with Cedric Diggory to a wizarding competition that at one point includes Death Eaters, the Quidditch World Cup. At the end, Harry takes a port key with Cedric from a wizarding competition, the Triwizard Tournament. Harry also encounters Death Eaters in the graveyard, but rather than encountering the Dark Mark, which was conjured using his wand at the Quidditch World Cup camp, he encounters the human incarnation of the Dark Mark, Voldemort. The Dark Mark was conjured by one servant of Voldemort, Barty Jr., while it's as if Voldemort was conjured by another servant, Peter Pettigrew. Rowling has used mirrored book structures before, notably in the first book, when representatives of the seven obstacles to the Philosopher's Stone are introduced earlier in the book in reverse order, as I talked about in episode 28. But this structure is particularly fitting in the central book in the series, the book with the moon card at the bottom of the column of major arcana cards ruling this book. The moon is also connected to sleep and dreams. The opening scene at the Riddle House in Little Hangleton is witnessed by Harry while he seems to be dreaming, 
though he really sees it as it's happening due to the link between him and Voldemort, since Harry is the accidental Horcrux. He has a number of other significant dreams in the fourth book, especially when he dreams about the mermaid in a painting in the prefect's bath holding his broom out of his reach. The moon represents a dark night of the soul, watery and mysterious, dangerous and scary. This points to the resurrection of Voldemort, someone who is the opposite of the emperor, a symbol of civilized order, which Voldemort wants to topple. Linked to the moon, card number 18, is the hermit, card number 9, because 1 plus 8 equals 9. This wandering mendicant, wearing what could be an invisibility cloak, might point to Barty Crouch Jr., the imposter who pretends to be Mad-Eye Moody, the ex rr hired by Dumbledore to be the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in Harry's fourth year. Barty Jr. begins by hiding under an invisibility cloak at the World Cup, though he's usually more of a homebound hermit, hiding under this cloak in his father's house. Now he's out in the world, like the card's wandering hermit. During most of the book, he uses Polyjuice Potion as a cloak, and despite being an imposter, teaches the students some useful things, the light of the hermit's lantern being a symbol of wisdom. Barty Crouch Jr. was also accomplished academically. He received 12 OWLs, like Bill and Percy Weasley. The Hermit card could point to two people, Barty Crouch Jr. and the man he displaced, Alistair Mad-Eye Moody, described as an eccentric loner, as hermits often are, alone, paranoid, but also possessing a store of valuable wisdom. Moody was returning to the world when he accepted Dumbledore's job offer, but Barty Crouch Jr. does this instead, relegating Moody to the shadowy, hermit-like existence he formerly endured at his father's home. The fourth set of sequential cards aligned with Goblet of Fire are cards 10, 11, and 12, the Wheel of Fortune, card number 10, Strength, card number 11, which is also a column card, and the Hanged Man, card number 12. The Wheel of Fortune reflected Harry's up-and-down fortunes in the previous book, when it was the center of the third column. Harry hardly ever seemed in control until he overcame his desire to hear his parents' voices and conjured a Patronus that saved him, Hermione, and Sirius. His fortunes rise and fall again in quick succession in the fourth book, but the double influence of card number 11, Strength, points to his having better control now. He's less at the whim of fortune, handling what fate throws at him with confidence. Another link between the wheel card and this book is that a sphinx rules over the wheel. Like Oedipus, Harry answers a riddle posed by a sphinx in the maze during the last task. And like Oedipus, he desires an archetypal mother, Cho Chang, and contributes to her partner's death, the archetypal father, Cedric Diggory, which I talk about in episode 5. Unlike the father of Oedipus, Harry is not caught up in a fate he enacts while trying to avoid it. That is Voldemort's role. The wheel, card number 10, is linked to the magician, card number 1, because 1 plus 0 equals 1, and to the sun, card number 19, because 1 plus 9 equals 10, and again 1 plus 0 equals 1. The sun card is linked to the phoenix. Some cards depict a phoenix burning up and being reborn from its own ashes. In episode 14, The Devil's Game, I talked about phoenixes being associated with the Temple of the Sun God at Heliopolis, which means City of the Sun, 
During Harry's duel with Voldemort, Harry is thoroughly master of his wand, like an archetypal magician, card number one, and like someone channeling the formidable woman on the strength card, number 11. The linked wands, which both have phoenix feather cores, create a golden cage of light resonating with phoenix song, as if it is channeling sunlight. And, as a result, the last four people killed by Voldemort's wand, Cedric, James, Lily, and Frank Bryce, appear in the graveyard, virtual resurrections, foreshadowing Harry using the resurrection stone before he walks into the forest to die. During the final task, Harry becomes master of the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth, and master of the four corners of the earth, symbolized by the maze growing on the Quidditch pitch, but also in his mastery of the point-me charm, a compass spell he uses to navigate the maze. By doing this, he becomes master of the cardinal directions, and finally embodies the emperor, having evolved into a true champion, not just a shadow champion slash fool, and the archetypal magician, master of the four tarot suits that link that card to the four elements, the four cardinal directions, and the four Hogwarts houses, which is fitting for a true Hogwarts champion. The column and sequential cards for this book intersect at number 11, Strength, creating a cross in the grid of cards. This is appropriate for Goblet of Fire because Harry is symbolically crucified in the graveyard when he is bound to a tombstone. However, it is not the time for him to submit to literal death. That will come in Book 7. His use of the disarming charm here foreshadows how he ultimately defeats his enemy and is an echo of Victor Crumb's sacrifice play in the Quidditch World Cup at the book's beginning, which is in turn an echo of Ron's actions during the life-sized chess game, the fourth obstacle to the Philosopher's Stone, in which he sacrifices himself for the sake of others, as I talk about in episode 19, Not Playing to Win. The Hanged Man points to another symbolic but temporary crucifixion. As with many things mirrored at the beginning and end of the book, there are characters who embody the Hanged Man at each end of the story. Frank Bryce, the loyal Riddle family servant, was the most likely suspect when the Riddle family was killed, though Muggle authorities couldn't build a case against him. The Hanged Man, also called the traitor, Il Traditore in medieval Italian decks, shows a figure hanging upside down, which I've mentioned before was called baffling, a punishment in Italy for traitors. Frank was considered a traitor to the riddles. Sally Nichols writes that hanging a traitor upside down, quote, is a mark of ignominy, of censure, and public ridicule. This was not unlike crucifixion under Roman rule, and as I've mentioned before, the imagery on this tarot card is associated with St. Peter, who was crucified upside down. The hanged man at the end of the book is Harry, who witnesses Frank's murder at the beginning through his connection to Voldemort. Like Frank, who reappears as a ghostly figure, Harry is upside down compared to the rest of the world. He knows he didn't put his name in the goblet, but most people don't believe him. He's also literally upside down at one point in the hedge maze, another image from a tarot card that figures in the final task, the others being the Scrooge-like creature on the moon card and the Sphinx on the wheel card. This is another case of the moon as a magical mirror, flipping elements at the book's start and finish. And while the Hanged Man is significant in Goblet of Fire, it's even more so in the next book when it's the middle column card for that book. 
Harry's inability to convince Fudge of Voldemort's return prepares for his almost constant inverted state during Order of the Phoenix, when he is the Hanged Man incarnate. Cards linked to the Hanged Man, number 12, are the Empress, number 3, because 1 plus 2 equals 3, and the World, number 21, because 2 plus 1 equals 3. Again playing the Empress, Hermione prepares Harry for the Triwizard Tournament tasks. Cho Chang also embodies the Empress, an archetypal mother desired by Harry, which Hermione is not, Rita Skeeter's muckraking notwithstanding, which I talked about in episodes 4 and 5. Cho is linked to the archetypal father-slash-emperor, Cedric. The world card is key during the climax of the fourth book, when the cage of golden light vibrates with Phoenix Song, and Harry is master over his own wand and in control of Voldemort's. Remember, the figure on the world card holds two wands. The linked brother wands represent another moment of wholeness and completion for Harry, as well as foreshadowing Harry being master over both his and his enemy's wands at the climax of the seventh book in the series. began to talk about how in the three middle books of the series, Prisoner of Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, and Order of the Phoenix, the tarot cards aligned with each book help us to see the relationships between the seven alignments that occur in each of these three books, another case of a three-by-seven grid, like the grid of tarot major arcana cards numbered 1 to 21. To recap, these alignments are, number one, a horcrux aligned with each book, 2. The DADA teacher for the book, 3. The non-Gryffindor house aligned with each book, 4. The element aligned with that house, 5. The marauder aligned with each book, 6. The member of the trio aligned with each book, and 7. The non-Harry champion aligned with each book. In Prisoner of Azkaban, the tarot cards that help illuminate J.K. Rowling's narrative choices also illuminate the alignments for that book. The Empress card points to the Diadem Horcrux. The Hermit card points to the aptness of Remus Lupin being the DADA teacher. Both the Empress and the Justice card point to Ravenclaw being the non-Gryffindor house. Justice, linked to the astrological sign of Libra, an air sign, points to air being the element for the third book. The Moon card links to Remus Lupin being the marauder aligned with the third book. The Empress points to Hermione being the member of the trio aligned with this book. And the Empress again points to Fleur Delacour, who wears a diadem slash tiara at her wedding, being the non-Harry champion aligned with the third book. Hufflepuff's cup is the Horcrux aligned with Goblet of Fire, which is somewhat obvious due to the goblet in the title of the book, and Cedric, the quote-unquote real Hogwarts champion, being from Hufflepuff. However, there are many other cups and virtual cups in this book. There is the tournament cup Harry takes with Cedric, the defense against the dark arts teacher Barty Crouch Jr., the second alignment for this book, carries a flask, a kind of cup, with polyjuice potion to maintain his disguise as Mad-Eye Moody. This isn't the only link between the cup horcrux and Barty Jr. 
When Harry goes into Dumbledore's Ponceve, another large cup, reflecting not what is above the liquid's surface, but the memories in it, Harry sees Barty Jr. on trial at the Ministry with Bellatrix Lestrange, her husband, and her brother-in-law. And where does Harry find the cup horcrux in the seventh book? In the Lestrange vault at Gringotts. Dumbledore uses a Ponceve to reflect on memories. Memory is linked to the moon, a key tie between Barty Jr., the Lestranges, and Hufflepuff's cup. The fourth column of cards has the Emperor at the top and Moon at the bottom. The gang of four that was Barty Jr. and the Lestranges went to prison for torturing the parents of Neville Longbottom, an archetypal father-slash-emperor, so severely that they lost their memories. Neville, who embodies the same archetypes as Cedric, is also linked to Hufflepuff. He excels at herbology, taught by the head of Hufflepuff, Professor Sprout, whom he will eventually succeed, and his future spouse is the Hufflepuff Hannah Abbott. Rowling also reveals in the sixth book that Voldemort acquired Hufflepuff's cup to turn it into a horcrux by altering the memory of a house elf, so she believed she'd killed her mistress, presumably the murder that enabled Voldemort to make the cup into a horcrux. The moon card, a mirror to the sun and the entire series, as well as symbolically linked to dreams and memory, links the cup to this book and to Barty Crouch Jr., who sees Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Snape coming for him in Mad-Eye's faux glass, another non-mirroring mirror, one of many that appear throughout the series. The third alignment, due to the cup horcrux, but not that alone, is the house for this book, Hufflepuff. At the leaving feast, Dumbledore lifts his cup to a Hufflepuff, the father-slash-emperor figure Cedric Diggory, and bids us all to remember. The moon, memories, Hufflepuffs, and virtual Hufflepuffs, cups, and a DADA teacher who stole the Longbottom's memories are all linked indelibly to the moon card at the bottom of the column for this book. It reappears as a sequential card in the sixth, which is the next time Harry will explore Dumbledore's memories, this time with permission. The fourth alignment, the element for this book, is Earth, the element for Hufflepuff. James Potter, another archetypal father-slash-emperor, reappears at the end of the book as a shadow emerging from Voldemort's wand. He is the marauder aligned with this book, the fifth alignment. Finally, Harry himself is the member of the trio aligned with the central book in the series, and Cedric is the champion of whom he was jealous, the sixth and seventh alignments. Earth is not only the element of Hufflepuff, but of the final task, held in a hedge maze grown in the earth of the Quidditch pitch. It is the element of death and graveyards, where Harry and Cedric go via the tournament cup. James, Harry's father, is a doppelganger for Cedric. They are both father-slash-emperor archetypes, and Cedric's death is a reenactment of James Potter's death. All of these alignments are easiest to discern through examining the tarot cards linked to this book, especially the Emperor and Moon, the top and bottom cards in the fourth column of Major Arcana cards, the one aligning with the fourth book of the series, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. You've been listening to Quantum Harry the Podcast, a podcast version of the book Quantum Harry, A Unified Theory of the Potterverse by B. L. Purdom.
All music heard on Quantum Harry is composed and performed by B.L. Purdom. Whether you are streaming on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, or another podcatcher, please leave a rating and or a comment and share episodes of Quantum Harry with your friends. Next time on Quantum Harry, episode 38, The Order of the Heretic, an examination of tarot symbolism in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I hope you'll join me. Oh.